Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for March 26th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be keeping it simple, just talking about the latest film news. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and joining me today is Slash Film weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers White Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, so welcome, guys. Thank you all for joining me on this episode. So let's just jump right into the news and start off with some Captain Marvel discussion. Brad, uh, Captain Marvel is now officially filming. I know that they've been filming for a little while, but Disney released a, a press release that said that they're officially filming, and there's some interesting casting news that came along with that. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so um, Captain Marvel's actually been shooting for a little while now because we, we've seen some set photos pop up online of Brie Larson in uh, a surprisingly green and gray Captain Marvel suit. Um, but today they made the official announcement that the principal photography has started, and with it came the official announcement of the full cast, which included some surprising additions that we had not yet heard about, uh, the biggest one of them being Clark Gregg returning as Agent Coulson, which makes perfect sense, because since Captain Marvel is set in the 1990s, uh, it exists in a time when Agent Coulson would still be alive uh, and likely maybe even more of a, a junior agent um, or maybe still Nick Fury's right-hand man. It remains to be seen. 
And in addition to that, we also have a couple of Guardians of the Galaxy uh, cast members making a comeback, which also makes sense. Uh, one of them being Lee Pace as Ronan the Accuser, the villain from the original Guardians of the Galaxy, who is a Kree. And since the Kree do play a big part in Captain Marvel's uh, origin and uh, her ongoing story, that um, makes sense for him to come back. And then also Jaiman uh, Hansu will be back as Korath uh, the Pursuer, who uh, was one of the people who was going after the orb that contained the Infinity Stone, uh, the purple Infinity Stone from the original Guardians of the Galaxy as well. So it remains to be seen how they'll tie into the story and um, what that will involve, but it is kind of cool to see uh, the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe tying together with this new edition of Captain Marvel. Uh, I do want to say, though, um, spoiler alert for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agent Coulson still is alive. He just isn't a show that no one watches and no one really cares about, except for (laughs) me and like 10 other people, I guess. Yeah, we we actually, yeah, we we just don't talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm still, I'm, I'm still, I would still like to see someday that the Avengers find out that Coulson has been alive this whole time, but I just, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, probably not. He's yeah. already, I think in the show, they're displaced in time anyway, so it doesn't matter. Okay, they found a, a workaround in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for that then? Uh, well, I, I think the whole show is a workaround in general. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I will say it's still an enjoyable show for the most part, but I'm, I am excited to see Agent Coulson back in a supporting role character, because I think that's where he really shines. Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts about the return of Clark Gregg or the return of these uh, Guardians characters to the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? No, not really. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to this one just because, uh, I don't know, it seems it's, you know, even though these characters are returning, this seems like a different sort of direction for Marvel. I mean, for one thing, it's going backwards in time, so that alone has me intrigued. And I'm also a big uh, Ben Mendelsohn fan, so he's in this, so that that alone guarantees I'm going to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad, really quickly before we move on to our next topic, I know that uh, the Time Stone is going to factor into Avengers Infinity War, and with this movie going back in time, but maybe Avengers and Avengers 4 coming up, do you think there's a chance that somehow some other characters in those movies get cast either backwards or forwards in time? Like, do you think this might be a way for them to bring Coulson back in, you know, from the past to the future beyond the point where he was already dead? Do you think that's something that they could do? Oh my God. I mean, I hadn't really thought about that, but I mean, that would be interesting if they were able to bring Coulson back in that, in that way, especially if the Coulson that is, still alive in Agents of Sealed kind of exists outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe timeline now. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a way that they could bring him back. I, I don't know. I feel like that might be too complicated and too weird for people to accept, but that would, that would be interesting. All right. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. Uh, Captain Marvel, I think, opens in, what, March of 2019? Like, just under a year from now? Is that right? Yep. Okay. Cool. Uh, so let's move on to our next item, and that is Stranger Things Season 3. We have now learned a few new details about that show. Chris, what do we know? Uh, yeah, the, the biggest reveal, although it's not that shocking, is that the show will be set in, uh, this next season will be set in 1985. And every season so far has jumped forward a year. Season 1 was 83, Season 2 was 84. Now this is uh, 85. Um, as I put it out in my write-up, um, it's going to be set in summer of 85 and summer of 85 is when both back to the future and the Goonies both came out. So I wouldn't be surprised if those get referenced in some way, because the show is very into 
uh, that nostalgia, that 80s nostalgia. Uh, beyond that, we know that uh, there's going to be more Steve, Joe Keery's character, who had a lot more to do last season. So um, they seem to realize everyone wants more of him. So he's going to be in season three a lot more. And there's going to be more relationships between uh, the kids. Um, Eleven and Mike and Lucas and Max are going to continue. Um, you know, season two ended with them sort of, you know, the, all those characters coming together as couples, so to speak. And so uh, they're going to get more of that in season three. HT, uh, are you caught up with Stranger Things? I am. I'm very excited for more Dad Steve. Um, <laughs> I was specifically. Gonna, I was going to specifically throw that to you because that just seems like something you would be super it into. It sounds like something I'm into, right? And I am. He was so great in the, the second season of Stranger Things, especially kind of taking on that surrogate babysitter role of all the kids. And um, actually, speaking of the Goonies, I kind of felt that vibe at, towards the end of season two when uh, Steve was kind of looking over all the other kids and they all came together in a big group. So I would be happy to see more sort of Goonies-esque adventures going on where stakes are a little less high and things can be a little more goofy and Will maybe doesn't have to suffer quite so much. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, I think on a previous episode of the show, Chris and Peter and I did like an in-depth Stranger Things season two uh, I guess like a quasi review where we just talked about a ton of different aspects of that show. Brad, are you caught up with Stranger Things? What did you think about the second season? Yeah, I really like the second season. I, I'm I'm even I, I wasn't even down as much on the the um sort of the the spinoff episode, if you will, uh, where we learn more about uh, Eleven's quote unquote sister and you know the idea of other people with with powers. Um, I, I didn't hate that episode, but um, but yeah, I, I, I really like Stranger Things season two. I'm interested to see what what happens with season three. Also, since it's set in 1985, I'm sure that just like there were Ghostbusters references in season two, we'll get plenty of Back to the Future references uh, for season three. Yep, looking forward to it. Hopefully, they can uh, improve a little bit because I, I loved the first season and thought the second season took a little bit of a nosedive, but it's it's certainly not unwatchable or anything. But uh, I'm hoping they sort of pull out of that. Uh, tailspin or at least what i perceive to be a little bit of a tailspin there um let's move on to another netflix property and that is a live action carmen san diego movie uh ht who's gonna star in this thing gina rodriguez is gonna put the miss in misdemeanor as carmen san diego in the netflix live action adaptation of the popular 90s uh computer game series slash tv uh animation series slash educational um, property. And uh, so this will be her next sort of step in her movie, budding movie career after she was a breakout hit in Annihilation. Um, and this is kind of coming off the tails of her CW show, Jane the Virgin, uh, soon ending. So this is a really exciting step for Gina Rodriguez, who will be starring as Carmen Sandiego and producing the Netflix adaptation as well. And this also comes after another little uh, t- detail is uh, she was voicing um, Carmen Sandiego for a animated series of um, the property for Netflix, which is coming out in 2019. And uh, that's a 20 episode uh, series. And um, I guess that Netflix liked her so much that they decided that they wanted to see her in the live action version. That's really cool. I can't think, I'm sure this happened. It must have happened before where somebody started out in uh, in animation and then jumped into live action. Maybe that happened in like Star Wars Rebels or something. Was, uh, was Forrest Whitaker's character Brad, uh, did you did you watch Star Wars Rebels? Was that character? I, I think he only appeared in Rebels after, after Rogue, Rogue One. One. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure. Although I will say, 
uh, there is another CW show, um, Vixen, which started off as a CW, CW seed animated series. Um, the actress who played Vixen jumped over to Legends of Tomorrow as a live action version of that character. Okay, there we go. Yeah. So if anybody else has any other other uh, options or, or um, instances rather of that happening, uh, let me know because I'm curious. Uh, email us at peter at slashfilm.com. There is also uh, a Constantine animated series on CWC now that has the character voiced by Matt Ryan, who played the live action version in the canceled NBC show, which uh, the character has now been revived and is appearing on in the Arrowverse series and will be a series regular on DC's Legends of Tomorrow next season. See, this is why I have you guys on the show. You know your shit. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, I'm really quickly before we move on, I'm curious as to what y'all's relationship is with Carmen Sandiego. Um, did you grow up? I, I grew up personally. I grew up playing the computer game in like uh, computer lab classes and when, <laughs> and when I was in elementary school and stuff like that. I never really watched the animated series or if i did it was only it was pretty infrequently but i obviously i remember the theme song because it's so iconic um did well let's go around the circle i guess chris did you have any relationship with the the carmen san diego franchise when you were younger i do i do remember the what was it it was like a game show was it or some sort of like trivia sort of show i remember watching the pbs educational geography show that had animated segments right i do remember that i do remember they had um it was like Rockapella was the house band that was always mm-hmm. there singing. I do remember that, but I don't really remember like the detail. I do remember like they never really showed Carmen Sandiego. So it's kind of weird that I guess the movie is changing that where she's the main character. Cause the whole point of the show was they were constantly chasing her and they never could find her. So I guess, I guess the movie isn't staying true to the source material. Yeah. You, you would <laughs> think that maybe Gina Rodriguez would be playing like a, you know, a detective who's hot on her trail or something that the movie could follow that character. But yeah, it seems like it's going to be from Carmen Sandiego's point of view. That's sort of an interesting twist. Um, HT, what about you? Oh yeah. I grew up playing the uh, computer game and I also grew up on PBS. So because uh, I didn't have cable as a kid, so I watched a lot of the uh, the game show as well. But yeah, I remember playing the video computer game a lot as a kid and being extremely frustrated because, you know, you never catch her. And I, I, I really hated that game because I didn't realize that the point was to learn about geography and not <laughs> to catch this lady who just, you missed just by the, by a tiny sliver. It was very frustrating for me, but I remember liking, liking Carmen Sandiego a lot, except for the fact, you know, you never catch her. Yeah. What about you, Brad? Yeah, I watched the game show whenever it was on PBS as well, um, and I, I'll ne- I have never forgotten the Rockapella theme song that they did for the show. Not to mention during the final game when you had to find like the loot and the warrant, and every time you did, they had Rockapella go the warrant and stuff like that. <laughs> Wow. All right. That's a deep cut. Um, All right. So let's talk about uh, one more Netflix related item, and that is Netflix films are now officially banned from the Cannes Film Festival. HT, what do we know about this? Yeah, so this is sort of the capper on top of the feud that started last year between the Cannes Film Festival and Netflix. Uh, so last year, Okja and the Meyerowitz stories were both allowed to screen for a Cannes competition last year, despite only screening for day-to-date releases in both theaters and streaming. And this sort of flouted French laws for having a 36-month delay between the movie's theatrical release and its streaming release. And um, it 
caused quite a controversy when this, these movies screened in Cannes, so much so that Okja got booed as soon as the Netflix logo appeared on screen. But the movies themselves actually were critically critically praised, but it created such a stir that Cannes has gone out and just straight out banned Netflix from um, competing. So they cannot uh, Netflix cannot submit films for future competition lineups, but they can screen them outside of competition. So, HT, I saw that you tweeted, this is dumb. The words, this is dumb. Uh, tell, <laughs> yes. me, tell me why you think this is dumb. Well, it's ridiculous because they are um, banning films just because of this distribution method. And I think that sometimes Netflix takes its disruptor, disruptor status a little bit too um, seriously and, you know, doesn't play by the rules. But at the same time, uh, France is being incredibly um, just archaic in their approach to this. And it's funny to me that the uh, the head of the festival keeps saying things like, we're a risk-prone festival. We, we like to take risks on our films. But here, it's the complete opposite. They're sticking by a very traditional uh, theatrical release method that doesn't you know, it, it only closes off these films to the rest of the world even more. And I think that, you know, just because Netflix you know, does not really abide by theatrical release except for when they show for awards uh, recognition or some sort of things like for the Oscars, you're required to have a two-week theatrical run. You That's often the case you see for a lot of indie films too. Like they don't even screen in theaters for that long either. So it's ridiculous to me that this is where Cannes is sort of drawing the line because Netflix has a lot of great films like Okja, like the Meyerowitz stories, like Mudbound last year. So it's just, it just seems to me like a very um, uh, backwards sort of and sort of reaction to to Netflix and its changing of the model. Uh, Chris, as somebody who attends a lot of film festivals, I assume you have an opinion on this. What do you think? I mean, uh, everything HT just said is pretty much is spot on. It's uh, it's it's a silly, archaic way of approaching, you know, the future. And, you know, uh, to, to take you way back in time, back in, you know, when when talkies were coming in, uh, not that I remember this personally, I'm not that old, but back when, um, <laughs> when, you know, when, when talkies were taken over for silent films, there was this sort of same reaction from industry people who were just like, oh, this is going to, they're going to ruin movies. This is, you know, this is a bad idea. And, you know, then it, it became the norm. And it's just, it's people clinging onto this idea that if something isn't directly made for the screen, it can't be a real movie. And, that just it doesn't apply anymore, uh, you know. I mean, there, you know, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of terrible Netflix movies, and you know, they're poorly made and all that stuff. But there, there's also really great stuff. I mean, Okja was in my top ten best movies of the year last year. I think it was phenomenal. So, I just feel like it's time for people to start adapting to the future, whether they like it or not. I also saw an argument talking about how Netflix, uh, its strategy right now is just more content and how these films, uh, this is an article I, say, I think I saw on Screen Crush, uh, arguing that these films are made to be watched sort of in the background and not made and not being sought out from Netflix for its quality or anything. But I think that regular studios uh, put out just as much trash as Netflix does but you know they have an equal amount of movies that go to festivals or that get um, in award circles and that kind of thing so I think that Netflix being singled out for this reason is just ridiculous 
Uh, Brad, do you agree, or do you sort of see where Ken's coming from here? No, no. Uh, Ken's being really pompous and just not cool about this. There, it's. I mean, they're definitely. They've always been the most stuffy film festival, and I just feel like this is just them trying to separate themselves. You know, even from things like you know Sundance and TIFF, and they're just trying to keep the you know the the upscale flair that they have because it's France and whatever. You know, and like. <laughs> This is, I mean, it just goes along with the thing of like now they're, they're the, the, some of the other rules that they t- were brought about is that now they're going to try and ban selfies on the red carpet and they're trying to stop people from wearing flats, you know, around Cannes before. And it's like, chill out, guys. It's like it's, it's a film festival. Grow up. All right. Uh, so let's move on to uh, I have no way of transitioning smoothly from that into the, ne- the next thing. So let's just dive into a galaxy far, far away. Some new details behind uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. The reshoots of that movie have surfaced. Chris, what do we know about that? Yes. Yeah, so an anonymous source. Uh, this is apparently an actor on the film. Uh, spoke to Vulture and uh, he or she gave away some details about you know, the infamous behind the scenes goings on with Solo, where, you know, Lord and Miller were fired and Ron Howard was brought in to finish. Uh, you know, I won't go through everything. You can you can read it on SlashFilm.com. But basically what this source says is Disney was not happy because Lord and Miller were doing up to 30 takes of one scene, whereas Ron Howard came in and got the same scene done in one or two takes. Uh, I just want to add a ca- uh, you know a caveat here that that doesn't really mean Lord and Miller are bad filmmakers. It just means their approach to filmmaking is not what Disney wants. Disney, you know, they want these movies done in a timely fashion. They want them done exactly this sort of specific way so they can get them out and meet a deadline and make a lot of money. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But Right, because like uh, David Fincher, I think he famously did like 99 takes of the, the, scene, the opening scene of The Social Network, right? And I don't think people would really say that David Fincher is a bad director because he does that. It's just a different tactic. Right, exactly. And Stanley Kubrick, same thing. He used to do, you know, hundreds of takes. And, you know, that's just a, a very different approach to filmmaking. Um, some other stuff they talk about, uh, you know, for one thing, the script stayed exactly the same, which was something I was wondering about. I was wondering if when Ron Howard came in, they were going to change the script up. But apparently he's using the exact same script that Lord and Miller were. Um, there's also some stuff about, uh, I can never pronounce his name, Alden... Alden Aaron, Ehrenreich, I think. Sure, that sounds right. Alden Ehrenreich. Um, uh, you know, there was a rumor that an acting coach was brought in, and this source confirms that and says that the acting coach helped. Uh, this source also throws a little shade on uh, Alden by saying he's not a bad actor, he's just not good enough, which is a little brutal, but I guess that's this, this person's opinion. So, um, you know, you can get more details at the article at SlashFilm.com. That sounds like some jealousy to me. I wonder if this this quote-unquote actor who spoke with Vulture and divulged all these details is actually just like a background extra or something, and they're calling themselves an actor. I don't know. Uh, who, who knows where all of that stuff comes from. But, um, but Brad, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, especially the idea that they use the same script to film is that did that surprise you as well uh yeah i mean yeah i would i i guess so like i I would have assumed that maybe there would have been some changes because with you know lord miller working on it there's probably a little bit more of a loose feel with some of the dialogue even though they have a you know a strict story they have to stick to but at the same time you know it's the improvisation doesn't really do much to change the script overall just just you know add some jokes and you know different readings on lines and things like that so 
I think what it comes down to is really what we get from it is that Lord and Miller were used to shooting much more fast and loose and weren't really prepared for something of this scale and delivering, you know, something on on par with, you know, what Star Wars is supposed to be. And they needed a director that could really reel things in, get get the shots that they knew they needed to get and not spend as much time, you know, trying to goof around and, and figure out what works best. They need somebody who knows, you know, what what, you know, works best. Um and yeah, to really hunker down and get the film done the proper way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one more Star Wars item on our docket today, and that is that Mark Hamill has revealed the original ending of Star Wars Episode Nine as intended by George Lucas. So we're never actually going to see this version of the movie, but uh, Hamill has explained what the sort of in, in broad strokes what that ending was going to be. Chris, what did he say about that? Yeah, so before uh, George Lucas sold Star Wars to Disney, he had a rough idea of, you know, a new trilogy and what he wanted to do with them. And Disney kept a few of those ideas, but they mostly threw George Lucas's ideas in in the rubbish bin. Uh, And Mark Hamill is saying one of those ideas was to end episode nine with Luke training Leia, I guess, to be a Jedi. And then Luke dies. I mean, obviously, even if Luke hadn't died in... The Last Jedi. Spoiler alert. Even if that hadn't happened, obviously that that could this this ending couldn't have happened anyway because Carrie Fisher, of course, passed away uh, before Last Jedi came out. But this is just one idea that could have happened, but now never will. HT, uh, what are your thoughts about this this original uh, trilogy ending as envisioned by George Lucas? I think it's fascinating, and I definitely like the idea of giving Leia a bigger role just because we see so many hints of her being Force-sensitive in the first trilogy, so it would have been really great if they followed up on that. But, yeah, I, it, I don't see this ever actually occurring in real life, although I, I think Brad pointed this out in the Slack chat. Uh, I would really like to see a novelization or something or maybe like a behind-the-scenes book of what the original story entailed. Yeah, Brad, did you have any other thoughts about this? Yeah, I just I feel like now that we're at a point, well, once we finish this new trilogy, uh, we'll, we're supposed to be finished with the Skywalker saga because all of the 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 other two Star Wars um, movie series that are coming out after this will not be part of it. They'll take place in a different time period in uh, the Star Wars galaxy. So there, ha- there, I wish that they would release some kind of book that collects what the ideas that George Lucas had written down, even if it's just his like scratch notes, a, a treatment, whatever he had. Just publish it so that fans can see, you know, what his ideas would have been and how how different that would have been. I think that would be really cool just to to get an idea of what that would have been like. Yeah, and I want somebody to make a, a like a Jodorowsky's Dune level documentary about what George Lucas's vision of the sequel trilogy would have been because I feel like there's probably enough material out there. Um, not that we have access to it, but it's in a vault somewhere um, that if somebody were able to get access to that stuff, I feel like there's there's probably storyboards, there's probably treatments, there's probably all sorts of stuff where you could make sort of, you know, in in the vein of that movie, sort of animate the storyboards and, and do a cool sort of retelling and, and be able to let George Lucas's vision be seen and fans can sort of compare it to the, the real version that we get. But um, I don't know. I don't know if that'll ever happen. We'll see if if Disney uh, decides that, <laughs> that they're going to bestow that upon the world. But um, all right. So the last thing is, uh, is Pacific Rim Uprising. And last week on Friday's episode of the show, we did a whole episode devoted to that movie where I 
spliced in interviews with John Boyega and Stephen S. DeKnight, the writer-director. So if you have not listened to that episode, I would recommend going back and check that, checking that out. Uh, I, I guess earlier last week, was talking about how I saw the movie and actually was not a big fan of it. But Brad, you have since seen the movie and you enjoyed it way more than me. So in the interest of fair play, I wanted to give you a little bit of a platform here to, uh, to share your opinion that was different than mine and tell me why you liked Pacific Rim Uprising. Yeah, you know, for me, I just had a lot of fun with this movie. Um, I, I don't think that it's any, really any – I don't see how it's worse than the first movie. You definitely feel that Guillermo del Toro isn't part of the, the franchise, but not in a bad way. It just feels slightly different because I think that it builds on the mythology of what's set up in the original movie in an interesting way because it's been 10 years since the events of the original. You know, we're, or it's, it's almost like it exists in this kind of – uh, a wacky sci-fi version of what what like post 9/11 world would be. You know, uh, if you think about how we as a society advanced af- after 9/11, and you know there was the uh, a short period for for mourning and s- somberness and fear, but now people have started to forget about this disaster that was in the past, and now it's you know it's kind of you know life as it used to be. But there's this sense of like global patriotism now because everyone has Jaegers and they're super advanced and they have cool weapons and they're they're really not like wor- necessarily worried about Jaegers anymore or, or kaiju anymore, or at least most of most people aren't. And so they've taken to, you know, using old Jaeger tech and turning it into weapons and things like that. Um, people are building their own custom Jaegers. And so it's, I think that it's this cool advancement of the world that was created in the original one. And on top of that, the action lends itself to being just, just big and fun and cool. It reminded me of a Saturday morning cartoon. Like, I've never been a fan of, uh, you know, big mech fights or, or anime or things like that. But there's something about this that just felt really cool to me because uh, unlike the first movie that is constantly just Kaiju versus Jaeger, this mixes things up a bit, you know, because we get a, we get an idea of uh, the capability of what people can do with custom Jaegers. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but the rest of the action sequences change up the formula of just having a Jaegu versus Kaiju. Uh, again, I won't say specifically why you can, uh, if you really want to, you can dive into it in my spoiler review, but I think that it just takes what was set up in the original movie in some interesting directions, not to mention the absolutely crazy twist that happens about halfway through the movie and which really is kind of a turning point as to whether you're going to be on board with everything that happens after it or not. Um, I just, I just had a lot of fun with it. I think that it's, it's, it's wild, it's cool. And I, I just don't know how you can't have a good time watching this movie. And even though I will say uh Scott Eastwood is terrible in this movie. I think that John John Boyega and Kaylee Sparney, uh absolute or Spaney, however you pronounce her name, I'm sorry. Um, I think that their chemistry together and the way that they work in this movie saves sa- really saves it from being super campy. Um it can't be in a bad way because it still is campy because of the kind of movie it is, but um it's campy in the same way that the, the first movie was. And I just I just think that it's uh it ups the ante in different ways while still staying true to what made the original movie cool. Well, that is, uh, that's Brad's thoughts on Pacific Rim Uprising. I disagree with so much of what you just said right there, but I'm just going to let it slide. And uh, I know that there's one thing we all can agree on, even though HT and Chris have not seen Pacific Rim Uprising yet, and that is that Scott Eastwood is a terrible actor. So let's end on that for today. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deep dives into the great features that you can find at the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, 
Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And don't forget to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Be sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Uh, rate and review the show on iTunes. That would be really awesome. And before we end, let's go around the circle and tell people where they can find more of our work online. Brad, let's start with you. You can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and you can also check out my own podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. HT? You can find me on SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbui. Chris? Also SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at cevangelista413. You can find me at SlashFilm.com as well, and you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20.